Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatched, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And today, um, on, on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, I want to talk about a couple of things. One's kind of a, a general topic or a general principle from philosophy, and then we're going to apply it to a rather disturbing thing that I a piece a news story that I found by a man, a man named John Berger, B U R G E R, and um, we'll we'll talk about what he has to say here. But the philosophical principle I want to talk about is called the slippery slope. And um, anybody that takes just a beginning philosophy class, philosophy one hundred and one, you're going to learn about the slippery slope. And just like it sounds like, you know, a slippery slope is you get started sliding down the slope and then you can't stop, okay? And we have a whole bunch of, you know, recent and not so recent uh, phenomena in our culture where we see the slippery slope in place. You know, the, the most glaring one I think is probably the whole abortion mess in that whenever they were first pushing for abortions, you know, they were saying, look, it isn't even a baby yet. It's just tissue, just a piece of tissue the size of your thumb. And um, – as some of the, you know, the old abortion hags used to put it, you know, those old men in the Vatican need to get over their love affair with the fetus. I believe that's what a, a previous um, Surgeon General of the United States said. So the, the, it's just a piece of tissue the size of your thumb. What's the big deal? Well, you might notice that fairly recently New York State passed an abortion law making abortion legal from conception up until the day of birth, okay? Meaning that, um, you know, you can... You can go in and, you know, maybe when the, when the child is, um, you know, just a, just a few weeks old in gestation and, um, again, maybe, you know, a little tiny thing, you know, maybe probably not much. You can probably sit without a microscope, but it's pretty tiny. And um, you can go in and you can, you know, destroy that child legally, no problem. Or later on, the child's six, eight, nine months along. You know, maybe the child's birthday is supposed to be tomorrow. And um, you can, you know, legally now in New York, you can go in and, um, you know, kill the child and, you know, pull it out piece by piece, however, there's a, however you know, gruesome way they're going to do it. But so you'll you notice how we started off saying, well, it's just a piece of tissue the size of your thumb. And now we've gotten to the point, at least in New York State and probably in other places as well, of saying that, well, no, it's a piece of tissue the size of your thumb. Oh, it's a piece of tissue the size of your fist. Oh, now it's a piece of tissue the size of an unborn baby, you know, of a full-term child. And all these can, can legally, you know, be ripped to shreds and, you know, flushed down the, down the drain. And so we had, a, we had a slippery slope there. There's any number of other things as well that the enemies of faith and the enemies of freedom come in and introduce these things in fair, what, what seem to be innocent ways. And then before too long, they, they become gargantuan and uncontrollable. Another example would be the income tax. Back when Woodrow Wilson was pushing for the income tax, the, the, originally, the, as the Constitution was written, the Constitution said no direct taxes. Because I think what the deal was, this is kind of my own speculation, it might show how much I know or how ignorant I am about history. But I think guys like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and that whole bunch, they knew. I mean, these people weren't stupid. You know, hum human nature is human nature and it doesn't change. And I think they knew that there's kind of two sorts of birds out there. One kind of bird wants to take care of his farm, run his business, raise his family, and, you know, essentially be left alone. 
the other kind of bird likes to go out and meddle around with other people's affairs. And so the, the you know what, what people like Jefferson and so forth knew was that when that second batch gets government power, then government becomes tyrannical because government comes in and takes people's money and makes them do whatever they want to do. And so what what happened was was in when the Constitution was written. They were saying, okay, no direct taxes. That way, if the, if the kind of people that like to get together and caucus and have meetings and, and promulgate proclamations and things like that, they can do it to their heart's content. But they're not going to have any money to play with, and so they're, they're not going to be able to mess around with our lives. And that was kind of the rule of, of things until Woodrow Wilson came along in the early 20th century and said, well, no, we need to have an income tax. And so they amended the Constitution to allow for an income tax, to allow for a direct tax. And how did they do it? They said, oh, come on, America. All we're going to do is we're going to take the top 1%, you know, those evil, filthy, rich people, and we're only going to take 1% of their income. So 1% of the 1%, we're not going to take that much, and it'll be enough to help the government pay for World War I or back then called the Great War. And, um, and that's it. You'll never hear from us again. Well, you might notice now we have the Internal Revenue Service, okay? And, um, and you know, the, the Internal Revenue Service, you know, you know, if you're in the top bracket right now, I think it's like 38% of your income. And, you know, there are other brackets from them. But it's not 1% of the top 1% anymore. There was a slippery slope there. Once the government discovered this revenue stream, it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is, this, this, this is like a kid in a candy store. You know, the, the gravy train has arrived. And so we went from, you know, 1% of the top 1% to now, you know, you look at the, you know, the people's, everybody's worst nightmare is dealing with the Internal Revenue Service. There was a slippery slope there. Okay, so and, you know, the, the, there's tons and tons of other examples. Well, the slippery slope I want to talk about today is the idea of euthanasia, of killing people who are who are extremely ill, who are dying from you know terminal diseases and probably you know very painful and and sometimes just horrible deaths, all the way down to people who in in society's eyes have outlived their usefulness. Maybe they're just very old, or maybe you have someone who um, has some kind of a congenital birth defect or something like that. And so they're, they're never going to be able to, quote, unquote, amount to much. And so we just get rid of them. Well, the thing is, when the euthanasia thing starts, you know, it starts off tugging at people's heartstrings, you know. Well, you know, look at this poor, hapless soul here. Look how they're suffering. And, you know, their life is going to be over in a couple of months anyway. Why not let them die with dignity? See, you, you use these little sophistries, you use words that um, you put words together to make it sound like it's something noble. You let this person die with dignity instead of, you know, laying in a hospital bed and writhing in pain and, you know, wearing adult diapers and have to have those diapers changed and have they have to be bathed by a nurse and, you know, all this care and stuff that they're going to demand in their dying days. Um, you know, let's let them die with dignity and we'll legally give them some kind of a, you know, a, a drug that will basically just kill them, you know, and um, so, the, so they, they can die with dignity. And so in a certain sense, people would go, well, gosh, you know, I mean, I suppose if it's, you know, you got someone that's, you know, pushing 90 and, you know, they've got a, you know, they've got cancer or something and, you know, they're just dying a, a slow death. I mean, you know, shoot, why not? Um, as the, the way a lot of people will say, you know, gee, you know, when, when my cat was dying, I took the cat to the vet and the vet gave her a little shot and put her to sleep and she didn't have to suffer anymore. And if I can do it with, I, with my cat... Why can't I do it with my dad, all right? Well, you know, because your dad's not a cat or your cat's not your dad. That's why. The, the short answer to the whole thing is, is that 
the reason why we euthanize or put animals down when they've suffered some kind of an injury, like if a horse breaks its leg, you know, you see in the Westerns all the time, you know, the, the broken, broken-hearted cowboy gets his revolver out and shoots the horse in the head. Or if you have a dog or a cat that's got up there in years and they're having kidney failure and so on, that's like, well, you know, the, the dog, the, the animal is needlessly suffering. Take him to the vet. The vet gives him a you know, shot of something and, and they, as they say, puts him to sleep. Another sophistry there. It sounds so nice. Put him down. Put them to sleep. Okay. Now you killed the dog. That's what you did. Get over it. Well, so the thing is, is we say, well, if we can do that with the dog, why can't we do it with a suffering human being? Well, the difference is this. In the book of Genesis, and you can just kind of look at it this way, if you want to look at it biblically, is that in the book of Genesis, we'll get to a practical reason here in a minute, but for those of you out there who are believers, who I'm guessing is most of the people listening to this broadcast, in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, or in, excuse me, in chapter 2, whenever God is creating the universe and creating the earth and everything, it says, out of the ground the Lord God called, or called forth, you know, the trees, Okay, and out of the ground, the Lord God called the animals. And so basically saying that, you know, trees and animals and stuff, you know, we're all, you know, made from the stuff of the earth. You know, we are dust unto dust we return. But then it says with the man, same thing, out of the ground, out of the adamach, you know, um, as the Hebrew word is. God takes the man, make, you know, a little guy made out of clay or mud or something like that. But then God blows his own life into the man. Okay, and that's the biblical poetic way of telling us that human beings the fundamental difference we have from goats and cabbages and pumpkins and cats and things like that is that we have an immortal soul, that the spirit that God blows into us, you know, the spirit that God imbues us with, at, at the, for the example, at, at our conception, that at the moment of conception, a being comes into being, a creature comes into being that did not exist before and will now exist for all eternity, either in heaven or in hell. All right. So this is, this is pretty big stuff. You know, you have this creature that did not exist before, and now it will exist forever, either in heaven or in hell. And so um, when, we, when we look then at, the, at you know, this idea of comparing people to, you know, putting, you know, pets down, the, the comparison doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up in a Christian point of view. I'm going to show you in a minute how it doesn't hold up just in a practical point of view. But um, from the Christian point of view, though, we would say no. Um, suffering can be redemptive, Okay. If a cat is suffering, if a horse is suffering, there's no redemption to be found in that suffering. That suffering is pointless. And that's why we can put animals down. But with a human being, since a human being can take that suffering, join it with the suffering of Christ on the cross, and apply it to the sins of the world, then we've got something. Then that suffering can be redemptive and can do things like spring people's souls out of purgatory. Um, it can purify the person who is suffering themselves and make them ready for heaven. And so, you know, we, from the Christian point of view, we can't just say, well, you know, I, I euthanize my cat. Why can't I euthanize my, my grandma? Okay. Um, that just doesn't work. But if we looked in, the guy named John Berger, he wrote this, um, wrote this report saying, and the headline is that more than a quarter of the deaths in Holland are induced report fines. Okay. A report finds that more than 25% of the deaths in Holland are induced. That means they're caused by something else other than natural causes. Okay. And what I'm going to do, I'm not going to sit there and just read this thing to you, but I'm going to read some key pieces out of it, and then we'll stop and talk about it. And that's one of the glories of Catholic Radio. We got the time to do this. But the guy starts off his little report here saying, 15 years after the Netherlands, Netherlands, Dutch, Holland, that's all the same thing, right? 
And so we all know that when we talk about the Dutch, we're talking about people who live in the, in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands and Holland, that's all the same country, all right? So 15 years after the Netherlands decriminalized euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, more than 25% of all deaths of the nation are induced rather than by illness or other natural causes. The figure is based on statistics from 2017 and includes almost 6,600 cases of euthanasia, 1,900 suicides, and some 32,000 people killed through a practice called palliative sedation, according to an article in The Guardian. In the article, journalist Christopher de Bilage, I guess, he's kind of a French-looking name, traces the history of euthanasia in the Netherlands from when it was introduced for extreme cases, unbearable suffering, no prospect for improvement, to the point where some are advocating for a legal pill that practically anyone can take in case they are tired of living. There's our slippery slope. See, it starts off, you know, with, with euthanasia being presented to the legislators and to the public as, look, you know, there are, there, are these un, there are these unfortunate, you know, tragic times when you have someone who is just suffering unbearably and they're not going to get any better. We know they're not going to get any better. You know, the medical community, you know, sees this stuff all the time and they're saying, look, you know, this person, he's never going to get any better. What you see here, you see this person, you know, writhing and groaning in pain in a hospital bed. This is as good as it's ever going to get for him. This is going to go on for another two weeks or two months or whatever, okay? And so as a result of that, they said, well, the merciful thing to do, again, you know, you have the words dying with dignity, mercy killing, things like that, where they said, okay. But then now it gets to the point where some are advocating for a legal pill that practically anyone can take in case they are tired of living, all right? It's kind of like, you know, we're only going to tax 1% of the 1%. Now we have the Internal Revenue Service. Oh, it's just a piece of tissue the size of your thumb. Now we're talking full-term abortions. See the slippery slope. We start off with, oh, you know, there's unbearable suffering here with no prospect for improvement to where, well, you know, for me, you know, I lost my job. My business went belly up. Life isn't worth living. I'm going to go down to the drugstore and, you know, buy, probably without a prescription, this pill that I can take that will, you know, painlessly end my existence. Is that the kind of world we want to live in? Now, John Burr goes on to quote a guy named Theo Boer, Bayer, B-O-E-R. This Theo Bayer says, the process of bringing euthanasia legislation began with the desire to deal with the most heartbreaking cases, like we just said, really terrible forms of death. But there have been important changes in the way the law is applied. We have put into motion something that we have now discovered has more consequences than we ever imagined. And that, again, is our slippery slope. And we can see the hand of Satan behind that. Again, it starts off, you know, innocently enough, even though... You know, the church has warned us about this for centuries. You know, the church says, look, you don't want to go down that path. Once you go down the path of saying that euthanasia is allowable, kind of for whatever reason, even in the most extreme reasons, before too long, little by little, it's going to become more accepted. And those extreme reasons are going to get less and less extreme. And the next thing you know, anybody's killing anybody for whatever reason. And that's what this Theo Bayer has, has said. He goes, it started off to deal with these heartbreaking cases, but now we've put into motion something we have discovered has more consequences than we ever imagined. Well, you should have paid attention to the Pope, okay? He says, Bayer is a former member of, of the five regional boards that were set up to review every act of euthanasia and hand cases over to prosecutors if irregularities were detected, all right? So again, the way these things start off, 
is they go, look, you know, we're not savages here. We're not barbarians. We're not just going to kill people for the sake of killing people. What we're going to do is if something, if, if someone is in a really bad situation where, you know, they're, they're not going to get any better, it's unbearable suffering, there's no chance of improvement, we're going to have a panel of medical experts are going to review this case. And if the medical experts all concur, then we will, we will go ahead and go ahead with euthanasia if that's what the individual or that's what the family wants. And if it looks like somebody did something they shouldn't have done, if somebody euthanized someone who shouldn't have been euthanized or whatever, then we hand it over to prosecutors. Okay, well, sounds good, right? But it says one of the reasons why euthanasia became more common after 2007 is that the range of conditions considered eligible expanded while the definition of unbearable suffering that is central to the law was also loosened, all right? So the reins of condition, this is part of our slippery slope. You start off saying, well, given these circumstances, you know, no chance of improvement, unbearable suffering, then okay. But then someone comes along and says, well, the suffering is not unbearable, but I still don't like it. Or, well, you know, my condition's never going to really get any better, although I could still continue living with the condition, whatever the case might be. But it says before too long, you know, the range of conditions expanded. And that is to say they started accepted more and more ways to allow for the euthanasia and so on. And then, you know, the, the, the definition of unbearable suffering was broadened. It was loosened. You know, that un, you know, it used to be that unbearable suffering meant just that. You know, someone that would be writhing in agony in, in a bed or something to where now it's like, well, you know, I stubbed my toe and my toe hurts or I have a toothache and my, my tooth hurts and I can't bear this anymore. All right. Today in the Netherlands, in, in Holland, Euthanasia is counted as basic health service covered by the monthly premium that every pet citizen pays to his or her insurance company. Okay, isn't that something? It starts off being something we're only going to use in sort of a last resort in the case of unbearable suffering when there's no chance for improvement. Now it's basic health care, basic health service. And notice, see, that's exactly what they've done with contraception and abortion. All right. You know, if a bunch of people in the government had their way, the contraceptives, you know, birth control pills and, and abortions would be covered, you know, by government health care. That's what they want. And in fact, um, during the, the debacle of the so-called Affordable Care Act, they tried to force insurance companies to pay for that as well. And, you know, there's a lot of insurance companies are saying, well, we don't want to pay for that, number one. And you had a lot of a lot of policyholders saying, I don't want my premium going to pay for someone else's birth control pills or someone else's abortion. And, you know, back in those days, you know, back during the Obama administration, the government just turned a deaf ear to it and said, well, tough. That's the way things are. Fortunately, the courts intervened and, and we got we got a little something there. But the point, though, is. Is that, you know, again, it starts off being something, the slippery slope, the euthanasia starts off being something that would only be used in the, in the most extreme circumstances, and now it's called basic health care. It's, you know, it's just like going down and, you know, if you, if you get cut, you go to the emergency room and get it sewed up. Or, you know, if you have, you know, a problem, you know, a blocked artery, you go in and have a stent put in or have, you know, heart surgery or whatever. You know, this is basic health care, as they say. Now, it says physicians can opt out if they want to. But an agency, and this is probably some Dutch word, and I can't pronounce it, the Levensign D Clinic, or the End of Life Clinic, that's easier in English, the End of Life Clinic, matches doctors willing to euthanize people with patients seeking to end their own lives. In 2017, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, just call it in English, the End of Life Clinic was responsible for the euthanization of 750 people. 
So again, your own doctor says, I'm not going to have any part of this. That's okay. The government has the end-of-life clinic, and they will match you with the doctor who will. All right? And it says that same year, this guy named De Belagie, I guess, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, wrote that the Netherlands Health Justice Ministers issued a joint proposal for a completed life pill. Now, isn't that a nice little euphemism? A completed life pill. They would give anyone over 70 years of age the right to receive a lethal poison, cutting the doctor out of the equation completely. Now, look at that. Talk about a slippery slope. We start off with, well, only in cases where there is unbearable pain and there's no chance for improvement of life. There's no chance of getting any better. Now, you know, the the Netherlands health and justice ministers are pushing for a proposal for a a completed life pill. Isn't that nice? You You have completed your life. And so without a doctor, you can go to the pharmacy if you're over 70 years old and you can take this pill that will end your life. All right. Now, again, stop and think about that. My first question is, well, what's so sacred about 70? Why not make it 65? Why not make it 60? Why not tell the teenagers, gosh, if your life feels like it's such a wreck, maybe it's just time to end your life. You know, that, that'd be a great thing to tell teenagers, wouldn't it? People in their teens and 20s. Oh, your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend just dumped you. Oh, you didn't get into the school you wanted to get into. Oh, you failed your calculus, you know, final or whatever. Well, here, we have an end-of-life pill that will take away all your suffering. And people are out there who would be listening to me and saying, no, you're the, 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 one of the things that goes along with the slippery slope is what's called the reductio ad absurdum, um, reducing to the absurd level. And what that means is, is someone might accuse me of that right now. They're saying, no, here, you know, you just get through saying that, you know, we have, that we have this um, – situation with someone that would be dying and now you're saying that back to teenagers you're, you're reducing it to the absurd that's just that's just not going to happen it's like sorry you know remember when they said it's just a piece of tissue the size of your thumb i think back in those days if you would have said they're saying it's just a piece of tissue the size of your thumb what's going to happen when they start aborting full-term babies they're, oh that's just a reductio ad absurdum you know that's never going to happen well it did all right and so once we start saying that you know certain kinds of euthanasia and so forth are legal. Once you can take out one, you know, demographic, why not take out the rest of them? And furthermore, who's going to stop you? All right. And so again, I think that the, these are these are things that we really kind of have to look at. So it says that you know people could get this completed life pill. Okay. It says the proposal was shot down. Thanks be to God. But doctors and end of life specialists I spoke to expect the legislation to do such a completed life pill to come before Parliament in due course. And see, this is the way these things always start. This way these things always you know, happen. They start off and they present something that just sounds completely, it's like you've got to be kidding. Two people of the same sex getting married? Are you nuts? Who's ever going to buy that? You've got to be kidding. Aborting a baby the day before it's born? That's just crazy. Who's going to buy that? You know, um, taking you know, 40% of people's income and giving it to the government? Who's, that's crazy. Who's going to buy that? And see, well, this is the way these people work. You just throw it out there. And you just, you just get it out there once and then, you know, let people cry and moan and, you know, t- tell you how crazy it is and everything. But it's out there. And then people have heard it. And they've been desensitized to it to a certain state. And then you bring it up again. You know, you wait two, three, four, or five years and bring it up again. Well, you know, that, the next time the complaining isn't quite so loud. 
I mean, you know, back in the days when, you know, with the whole idea of no-fault divorce, you know, it used to be that in order to get a civil divorce within the civil courts, I'm not saying anything about, you know, an annulment in the Catholic Church or anything, just in the civil courts, you know, to go down to your local courthouse and say, I want to divorce my spouse, you had to prove one of the three A's, adultery, abandonment, or abuse, or any combination thereof. And um, all of a sudden, then Nevada comes up with this idea of no-fault divorce. That is, we just don't want to be married anymore. And when no-fault divorce was first flown at the flagpole, people were going, oh, that's just crazy. You can't have that. If you have no-fault divorce, the whole society will fall apart. We can't have that, so we get shot down. But then it comes up again, and it comes up again, and it comes up again. And before too long, well, Nevada has no-fault divorce. And so I can remember during the 60s when I was a little kid, everybody was beating a path to Nevada during the 60s and 70s to get no-fault divorces because their own state didn't offer them. Well, then the surrounding states, you know, like, you know, Utah and Colorado and so on, Wyoming, they're going, well, people just cross the state line to go to Nevada. We might as well legalize it here. And before too long, you've got no-fault divorce legalized everywhere. And so, again, just like here, you know, they want this completed life pill and the doctors in end of life, you know, the, you know, the people shot it, you know, the proposal was shot down. But the doctors and end of life specialists say, well, we're going to introduce legislation again. OK. And, you know, before Parliament in due course. In other words, once we get people kind of worn down to this a little bit, then we'll, we'll introduce it again and again and again. And finally, one day it'll go through. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament. And you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindenburg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, we've been talking about a rather disturbing report that comes out of Holland or the Netherlands, same place, and um, about the, the practice of euthanasia or the practice of mercy killing or the practice of dying with dignity, all those little wonderful terms they have in Holland and how you know, the Dutch people have embraced this. But it's really kind of taken them down a very dark road. As we started off in the previous part of the program here in the first half, we saw how in Holland, in the, in the Netherlands, at first they said, well, in cases of, of unbearable suffering and no prospect of improvement, you know, why make someone suffer? You know, why, why should we, you know, put someone through that when we can just give them a nice shot of, you know, morphine or something like that and, and, and put them out of their misery, kind of like you do a suffering cat? And um, when we talked in the previous um, part of the of the program here, how as Christians we believe that well, you know, for a cat or for a horse or for a dog or a goat or something, um, suffering is pointless. There there is no purpose to animal suffering whatsoever. But with human beings, suffering can be redemptive. 
And, um, and so from a Christian point of view, since we can join our sufferings with those of Christ on the cross, then suffering has a purpose. It can be redemptive. But even if you don't agree with the Christian point of view, I think that if we just look at the practical implications of this, it takes us someplace where we don't want to go. And I've been kind of reading from an article by, by a guy named John Berger um, that came out in January 22nd of 2019. So if you want to you know, Google John Berger, B-U-R-G-E-R, um, you can you know, find this, this, re- this little essay that he wrote that says, more than a quarter of deaths in Holland are induced report fines. In other words, a quarter, 25, more than 25% of the deaths are caused by you know, people, agents of the government, agents of the medical establishment, something like that. And so as we go down, we're kind of going through some of these slippery slopes, as they use it, you know, the term they use in philosophy, that once you allow one thing, you necessarily have to allow another and another and another until you end up someplace that you don't want to be. And so um, there's a guy, um, another guy named Wesley Smith, who is a, you know, kind of a pro-lifer. He's definitely, you know, not for euthanasia. And he pointed out that many people are killed in the Netherlands by what's called terminal sedation which is defined as slow-motion euthanasia, wherein patients not in the active stage of dying are put into artificial comas and, den- and denied all sustenance until they dehydrate to death. In other words, you have someone who is, you know, they're not actually, you know, we're like we're in our culture where you would call hospice and have hospice come in and take over and keep them comfortable and, you know, give them water and food and, and you know, try to control their pain as best we can. In their in their final days, you know, we, we've we've seen that lots of times, and um, but then instead of that, what you do is you take these people and give them medicine that puts them into a medically induced coma, you know, and and then you just you deny them any food and water and just let them waste away until they die, you know that that's just brutal, that's barbaric. Now that's different than what's called palliative sedation. You got to keep those two two things separately. Um, palliative sedation and palliative care eases the dying person's symptoms while not directly causing death, okay? And so like when you have things, again, like hospice, you know, the folks at hospice do a really, really good job um, with people that are in, in their final stages of life of, you know, keeping the family informed, keeping them comfortable, and, and re- just really accompanying them um, on, those, on those final stages of life. So um, that's different. I want to be very, very clear about that. You know, then when we talk about terminal sedation, you know, we're talking about, you know, a direct way to hold, you know, you take someone and just kind of knock them out and keep them unconscious and then just sit back and watch them die of starvation and, and die of dehydration. And so, again, that's, you know, that's scary stuff. But this guy named John Berger, he refers to an article in the National Review that this um, Wesley Smith guy wrote. And he says, quote, since euthanasia was first decriminalized in the Netherlands, the doctors have traveled down a very dark road. No kidding, all right? Induced deaths have expanded from terminally ill who ask for it to the chronically ill who ask for it to people with disabilities and the elder who ask for it to people with dementia, psychiatric patients with mental illness and infanticides or babies that are born with serious or terminal illnesses or disabilities who don't have the capacity to ask for it. Okay, you see that? So again, this is part of our slippery slope that we talked about in the first part of the program. That um, we start off with, it's like, well, you know, we're going to provide euthanasia, we're going to provide death with dignity, you know, for people who have terrible suffering or, you know, people who know that, you know, their, their days are numbered and, you know, someone that comes, they, they know they've got stage four cancer of some kind and they know that there's going to come a point 
when they're basically just going to be laying in bed. They're not going to be able to get out of bed. Someone's going to have to take care of them. Someone's going to have to wash them and bathe them and brush their teeth for them and comb their hair. And, you know, they're going to have the depends on, you know, kind of the adult diapers. And they're going to have to have their diapers changed by either a family member or a or a healthcare professional or something, you know, a nurse or something. And you look at that and it's like, you know, well, nobody in their right mind would relish those thoughts. No one would want that. Who, you know, who, who would? You'd be crazy if you'd want it. But nonetheless, people look at it and say, I just can't see myself doing that. And so, you know, now while I still have all of my faculties about me and everything, I'm going to take this completed life pill. I love that little euphemism. I'm going to take this completed life pill, and that's going to end my life so I don't have to go through all this, all right? Well, as Smith, you know, who, who said, you know, he, he says that, you know, he warned that the, the Dutch law permits organ harvesting um, to be conjoined with euthanasia. Now, there don't we have a little bit of a, um, of a conflict of interest. That is to say, you've got, um, you know, maybe you've got someone that's in, you know, whatever shape they're in. And it's like, boy, you know, that guy sure has a nice set of corneas. Um, gee, that woman sure has a couple of healthy kidneys. Boy, you know, look at this. This guy's got a good good liver, you know, whatever. And we need these organs. And so basically you, you end up just treating the human body as a commodity, you know, that, that um, we can take these people and basically sedate them while they're still, you know, functioning. And, um, you know, you have someone with a psychiatric disorder. You have someone, you know, with a mental illness or something like that that doesn't really have the, the, um, the, the capacity to ask for this kind of stuff. But someone, you know, a government official, a medical official makes the determination, well, you know, this person has got schizophrenia so bad. This person has bipolar disorder so bad. You know, this person is chronically depressed so bad. They're never going to have any quality of life. And so, you know, while we have them sedated from whatever thing, you know, we've got the required, you know, five physicians were able to sign off on them. And what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to put them under. And then while they're sedated, then we're just going to go in and start harvesting out all their organs and, you know, donate those, you know, give those organs to people that need them, which, again, organ donation is a great thing as long as you're not, you know, murdering people to get their organs. But here now all of a sudden, you know, the, the Dutch anyway have kind of gone down this path of saying, well, you know, if, if we're going to, if the people are going to die anyway, why not harvest the organs, all right? It almost kind of reminds you of those of those terrible things we saw here in the United States a few years ago about the people going into the Planned Parenthood abortion clinics and, you know, going, going in undercover and asking about buying um, tissues of the babies who have been killed in abortion. You know, can, can we buy their brains? Can we buy their livers? Can we buy, you know, the, the various parts that will come out, out of these unborn children and use them to to make pharmaceuticals or to make um, make other make other you know biologically related products, and um, they were going in and, and asking. It's like, well, you know, gee, you know, the the brain is particularly valuable to us. Um, can you do the abortion in such a way as to preserve the brain? And the woman at Planned Parenthood, oh yeah, yeah, we can do that for you. Sure, no problem. You know, hopefully a lot of you listening to this broadcast remember those those terrible things. And, you know, this is the road we go down. You know, once we unleash the, the dragon of abortion, so, well, it's just a piece of tissue the size of your thumb. It's, you know, it's just, it's not even a human being. It's just tissue. Well, then all of a sudden, though, now we're going in and we're killing babies that are seven, eight, and nine months along so that, you know, we can pull their livers out, so we can pull their brains out, so we can pull, you know, whatever parts out of them we might be able to manufacture something valuable and profitable out of. And again, we look at them and go, how do we get there? Well, it's a slippery slope. Okay, now, um, old Berger 
ends his um, article, or no, this is Smith. Sorry about this. Wesley Smith says, does this mean the Dutch are horrible, ghoulish people? Absolutely not. Sorry, Mr. Smith. I would, I would beg to disagree with you on that. Does this mean the Dutch are horrible, ghoulish people? Absolutely it does. If they're willing to let this go on in their country, they're as horrible and ghoulish as we are as the way we have, we've allowed abortion to come in and you know, go through all nine months of abortion, how we've allowed the, you know, the harvesting of, of aborted babies, harvesting of their parts to be sold to the highest bidder, the way that we've butchered up marriage, the way we've butchered up so many other things. It makes us horrible, ghoulish people too. I don't think you can say that these people are not horrible, ghoulish people. If they know this is going on, they're allowing it to go on. Um, but anyway, to give you know, Wesley Smith his due, he says, does this mean the Dutch are horrible, ghoulish people? He says, absolutely not. Again, I disagree with that. He says, but they are logical. Once the population widely accepted the premise that killing is an acceptable answer to suffering, the country took that belief precisely to where it leads. Okay, that is, again, that's our slippery slope. All right, let's just kind of take a look at that again. Look at what he says. He says, does this mean, does the fact that the Dutch have allowed now, not only for people who are suffering terribly and have no prospect for recovery and everything, they've allowed for, you know, euthanasia in, in those. It started out with that. But now it's getting to the point where, again, they, they want this completed life pill, which initially was shot down, but it's going to be introduced to the parliament again in due course because now that it's out there, they, they've, they've introduced it once, people were abhorred by it, but then you, you let people get used to it. And the second time they, they, they propose it, it'll probably be shot down again. The third time, yeah, it gets a few votes. The fourth time, it gets a few more votes. The fifth time, it gets even more votes. The sixth time, it gets voted in, okay? Whatever. I mean, that's just kind of the way things go. But um, he says, you know, th this doesn't mean that the Dutch are ghoulish people, but they are logical. Once the population widely accepted the premise that killing is an acceptable answer to suffering, the country took that belief precisely where it leads. And where does it lead? It leads to where they are now, that anybody can go in and ask to be killed for any reason whatsoever. Just like right now in the United States, any pregnancy can be terminated for any reason whatsoever. Right now in the United States, any marriage can be ended legally for any reason whatsoever. This, you know, this should not surprise us. Again, as, as, as Smith says, the Dutch people are logical. It took them precisely that this kind of thinking took them precisely where it leads. All right. And it says such horrors will happen here, too. I'm, I would say they already are happening if we allow ourselves to be similarly seduced by euthanasia consciousness. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. OK, so that's you know, kind of the high points of, of, of John Berger's article. But again, I think that when we when we look at this and we look at it, well, we talked in the first part of the program about the slippery slope, you know, the idea that once you start down one of these paths, it becomes very, very difficult to back up and to get out of it. And it, you know, it's kind of like what he said earlier in his article when he talked about the, you know, the way that um, the way the, the road that they had gone down and said that, you know, that it's really you know, taken down and taken them down a dark path. Well, no kidding. You know, it's really taken them on a very dark path where. You know, it'll, it'll you know, maybe get to the point, you know, you look in the United States, how they remember the Plan B pill, remember that? You know, when Plan A, um, you know, you have some, you know, couple, you know, a man and a woman, a boy and a girl out practicing adultery or fornication or something, and they're, they're contraceptive, they didn't use a contraceptive of any kind, you know, a, a condom or a birth control pill or something like that. And now, the, 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 especially the, the female is thinking, oh my gosh, I could be pregnant. Well, 
for a while there, they would have to go to a doctor and the doctor would prescribe for them um, you know, a, a, a cocktail of hormones that would basically cause the, the woman's body to spontaneously abort any unborn child she might be carrying, whether she has one or not. It just causes the, 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 the womb to empty itself out. And so it started off, it's like, well, something like that, that really should be you know, prescribed under a doctor's care. And so they did that for a while, but then again, the the pro-abortion people, you know, that um, you know, they they never met a, a a way of killing a child they didn't like, and they're going well, but you know, what if you have a you know a 15, 16 year old girl who needs the guidance more than anyone, but you got a you know 14, 15, 16 year old girl who went out and had sex with someone, and now she wants to make sure that she's not pregnant, and she's too afraid to go talk to her parents, and she's too afraid to make an appointment with the doctor. Well, we used to make this make, make this thing available over the counter, which they do. Right now, you can go to, you can go to any pharmacy in the country, and um, you know, most, I don't know of any pharmacy that doesn't carry it. You can go in and buy this Plan B the way you'd buy a Hershey bar. You just buy it over the counter. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure they don't even they don't even card you for your age, because again, I think at first, when they first made it available over the counter, it had to be to you know to someone that was 18 years or older. But then, either legislatively or through a court decision, they got that changed to well, no, anyone that wants it gets it. And so now we make it possible for a 15 year old girl to go out and and whether she you know you know maybe she consents to it maybe she doesn't it doesn't matter because at that age by law it's called statutory rape you know the the, the law does not recognize a 15 year old's capacity to say yes to sex but nonetheless you know may, you know maybe in her own little 15 year old way she did consent to it but now she's having you know regrets and thinking oh my gosh you know what if I'm pregnant what am I going to do. No problem. You just trot on down to your local pharmacy and buy the Plan B pill and take the pill, and your problems are flushed down the drain. And so again, you know, you figure, you know, how do we get there? How do we, you know, how was it that we went down this really, really dark road? And it, it all begins, you know, very, you know, very simply and very kind of almost. I don't want to say innocently because there's nothing innocent about it. But it starts off at least, at least it seems innocent. You know, well, this is women's health care. This is women's rights. You know, we don't want to do. We don't want to, you know, tell women they can't do anything because you know we're supposed to be free and all this kind of stuff. All that sounds good. But then again, you look at the you look at the outcome of it. And, you know, we go from having, you know, the plan B pill, we have the, the contraceptives, which don't always work. And so there's because of contraceptives, we have abortions, at least that's what the Supreme Court says in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you know, that we have abortion precisely because we have contraceptives. And so then, you know, and when the contraceptive fails or is not used um, because the people are irresponsible, which, you know, promiscuous people tend to be irresponsible almost by default, well, then we have the plan B pill. Well, again, all the all these little fixes that we have for things when they don't don't turn out the way we want them to turn out that involve killing other people is just pretty brutal and pretty ghoulish. Again, like I say, you know, old um, old Wesley Smith says, you know, does this mean the Dutch people are horrible, ghoulish people? He says not. I say they are. I say we are too. I say you know any 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 group of people or any culture that supports this that would that would think that um, murdering unborn children or murdering the 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 aged or murdering you know the people with with mental illness or murdering people with physical um, disabilities and things like that. Um, I always say to put them out of our misery. I don't think we're really worried about their misery. I think we're worried about our misery. And so you know it's like well we'll just give them the completed life pill and um, that'll that'll get rid of them. 
Well, again, I think that, you know, that's, that's a very, very dangerous road we've gone down. Um, the Dutch, you know, if you want to see where, where it's going to take us, just look at the Dutch. You know, look how and look where they're look where they're at with all this. Then ask ourselves: Do we want the same thing? Um, if we do, just keep on going. Keep going down the road that Oregon and Washington State have gone down, where physician-assisted suicide is okay. Well, you know, it starts off being physician-assisted suicide. Then it turns out just being no. I'm just tired of living. I'm going to go down to the pharmacy and buy me the completed life pill and go complete my own life. You know, and so again, I think we look at these things, and hopefully we understand. That, you know, the slippery slope that we go down, this dark road that we go down by allowing this stuff and, th- and, and, and allowing this stuff to go on um, takes us someplace where we don't want to go. Because eventually what happens, and again, people will sit there and say, oh, you know, you're just being alarmist. Well, you know, I might have you – know, people will accuse me of being alarmist for what I'm going to say. But they also were accusing people of being alarmists back when they said, well, if you allow – First trimester abortions before too long, you're going to be aborting full-term babies. Oh, that's just silly. Why would you even say that? That's just stupid. Well, you know, if you allow, you know, this 92-year-old to, you know, have the doctor, you know, give him an overdose of morphine or something to kill him, before too long, you're going to be killing, you know, children with um, developmental disabilities or with physical handicaps and things like that. Oh, we're not saying that at all. You're just being an alarmist. Well, you know, the Dutch are heading down that road and a lot of the world's not too far behind them. And so, you know, whenever people will, will, will kind of argue that tactic that you're just, you know, you're just being ridiculous, you're just being extreme, you're just being an alarmist. Well, look at what we've done. You know, let, let the results speak for themselves. And so I think that as we look at this, um, this thing coming out of Holland, where, again, according to, the, to John Berger, 25 percent or more of deaths in Holland are induced. You know, they don't happen because someone just got, you know, lived a, you know, a long, you know, long life and, and they were, you know, they were done and God called them home. No, in over 25% of the cases in Holland, it happens because someone gave them a pill or gave them a shot and induced that death and made it happen. And, um, and it, you know, before too long, you know, again, when you start saying, well, you know, we'll go after the old, we'll go after the sick, we'll go after the mentally ill, we'll go after, you know, the troublesome like we do with the death penalty, we'll go after the babies that we don't want to, to live because of abortion. Well, how, how much longer is it the, until they come after you and me? You know, um, we've seen that happen before in history as well, where the, you know, they'll, they'll come after the people that are troublesome. They'll come after the people that, that cause problems for the government. You know, that's what um, Mao Zedong did in China. That's what the Khmer Rouge did in Southeast Asia. That's what Joseph Stalin did in the Soviet Union. That's what Hitler did in, in Nazi Germany. It's, you know, you get the people that are causing problems and the people that are a, that are a hindrance to you. Um, Herod the Great did it in the, in the, the years before Jesus was born. Anybody gets in the way, get them out of the way. Kill them if you have to. And so, you know, we, we see this brutality has gone on for centuries. We've just gotten a little bit less bloody about it. You know, if you give someone a pill, that's not the same as, you know, shoving a sword through their liver. And so, um, you know, we've gotten less bloody about it. And so we think that it's kind of more acceptable. But I think regardless, we don't want to go down that path. and We don't want to go down that slippery slope. So, so that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are 
archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our Donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.